0: I'm actually uh, giving a kind of truncated version of the eugenics episode we did for the Math Society this week.
1: Oh, nice.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, <laughs> it's actually a funny situation. They were doing a basically stories in maths history sort of uh, talk. A couple other people are doing it. They wanted to get some stories from stats history. Yeah. But the the guy they asked is kind of, um, shall we say, slightly opposed to the uh, warts and all approach. To the history of statistics that I tend to take so I, I suggested let's talk about Pearson and Fisher and he said oh no 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 no, that that's not such a good story you know go, go talk about <laughs> but uh I won over the person organizing it by telling them a bit of the story <laughs> yeah
1: nice who's the guy who um wrote out that mathematical proof, uh, proof and then the next day went and got killed in a duel
0: oh fucking <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, yeah um Galois Galois, that's the dude. Yeah, yeah fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> Just the most dudes rock moment. Like <laughs> he didn't even what a fucking stupid way to go. Anyway. Anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Hello and welcome to Statistically Insignificant, a podcast with visual aids about statistics which doesn't actually give you homework, I promise. I'm Tess, my pronouns are she and they, and I will be doing the instruction today. With me is Bart, who wouldn't do the homework even if it was given. How's it going, Bart?
1: Hey, um, good. I go by he and him. And yeah, the reason we don't give homework is because I threatened to cause a strike (laughs) and- (laughs) There had to be like a, a big settlement. It was a whole big deal.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bought you one beer. <laughs> now, before we get started on the main thing, I have a bit of housekeeping cl- uh, to do. Specifically, it's the I told you so segment. I should get air horns or something. You know, <laughs> This is a follow-up to our third episode where we talked about politics and census, uh, census, census collection data, so uh, go back and watch that if you want to hear me ranting about it. But basically, the uh, latest census in Australia had a really fucking stupid question about sex. So it went from having male and female own options only to having n- male, female, and quote-unquote non-binary sex, which is not how either being non-binary works, I can tell you that with some authority, or how being intersex works, actually. Anyway, go watch the episode if you want to uh, get into the weeds about it. What came out recently, at the end of last month, was the ABS's report on that particular thing, and shockingly, the data they collected is useless because the question was written in such a way that it did not actually collect any data on diverse genders, it did not really collect any useful data on diverse physiology because it didn't ask that question properly. The ABS knew it would be shit, they were basically forced into using that particular question structure by the government at the time, which was a deliberate effort to stymie the attempt to get good data on people with diverse genders and sexualities in Australia, because the government at the time was the more conservative government, shall we say, so uh, they were viscerally opposed to the idea. Some of the worst people in Australia have of course come out, ignored the part where this didn't give you any useful data, and said that, ah, well this just means that because Such a small percentage of the population actually tick that box, that means that this is a population you don't have to care about. So 43,000-ish people did actually tick the box for the non-binary sex, which is about 0.17% of the whole Australian population recorded in the census. Mark Latham, for example, came out and said that, oh, this means that all the people shouting about trans rights or you know, protecting people from his bullshit and transphobia and everything are just like a tiny minority of people who can be ignored. This is, in fact, direct contradiction of what the ABS says about how this data can be used. And even if only that many people were actually non-binary, forty-three thousand people is quite a lot. That's bigger than a lot of countries. It's bigger than a number of cities in Australia. And like those forty-three thousand people. Still, fucking deserve to have their lives and their safety and their experience acknowledged and recognised to live full full existences.
1: On the other hand, though, I don't think we should care about the city of Wagga Wagga.
0: <laughs> I mean, I mean, look, about, I, can, I can. It's pick about a, the same number. <laughs> I can pick. I can pick a couple of suburbs of Sydney that I would, you know. <laughs> anyway, fuck transphobes. Anyone trying to use this data to argue against trans rights should meet me in the dojo of ideas. The main content of the episode today is one of the many difficulties in doing science and a limitation on what stats can be used for – missing causal variables. What I mean by that is if you have two things that happen together, let's call them A and B, so these are uh, variables we're observing, and you propose that A causes B, so changes in A cause changes in B, This is one possible explanation for why you see A and B occurring together. The other possible explanation is that B causes A, or there might be something that you haven't observed, let's call it C, which causes both A and B. Arguably, these two here are your missing variables, right? In the first one you have the direction of causality backwards, in the second one C causing both A and B, you don't know C. You don't understand that it's there. If you don't know that C is there, you can't use it as an explanation of what's causing A and B. This can be really hard to deal with, particularly in circumstances where you can't control the environment, so you have to rely on observational studies. If you can control something and do a controlled experiment, you can actually make A um, much stronger argument for what direction the causal relationship goes, because you are making the changes in one of the variables and seeing what happens in the other. There are some situations in which you can use observational data to argue for a causal relationship, but it's much harder. You need shitloads more data to do it. A lot of this also comes down to the explanation that you as the person doing the research gives to what is going on, and that's kind of what we're going to focus on today. Missing variables are something that statistics can't really detect because stats doesn't see causal relationships. What I mean by that is causation is something that is brought as a human explanation to the behaviour in data. It is not something that emerges from a statistical analysis. What stats can measure is co-occurrence and correlation. So co-occurrence is when two or more things tend to happen together. It's generally used in the context of categorical or qualitative things, for example the chi-squared test for independence that we've talked about a few times – see our episode on statistical relationships for more on that – is a test of whether there is a tendency for two different variables to have certain values, more or less often with respect to each other. We can look at relative occurrence too. For example, if one group of people has a much higher rate of a medical issue than another group, there may be a reason for this that is worth investigating. We discussed that sort of thing in our episode on risk for pregnancy complications. Correlation requires ordering in both variables, in fact, you need to be able to say that one thing is bigger or smaller than another, even if you can't measure how much. You could say that one group of athletes with a particular trainer has a tendency to get higher results in races, as in they win more often, they place more often than another group of people with another trainer. That doesn't actually necessarily tell you that the first group always runs faster in every single race in the second group, it's an ordering of the outcomes. Correlation measures the tendency of two variables to increase or decrease together, or for one to increase as the other decreases and vice versa. We had a discussion of linear correlation in episode 23, but straight lines aren't the only relationship that exists. For example, wealth is associated with longer lifespan, but the relationship isn't a straight line because then someone like Jeff Bezos would be living for hundreds or thousands of years, basically.
1: I mean, I think that's the plan.
0: Yeah, but human physiology (laughs) hopefully gets in the way of that. That's not actionable. That's not actionable. (laughs) For a visual guide to why stats can't tell you about causality, imagine that you have a whole bunch of data measuring two variables. Let's call them both X and- let's call them X and Y, and I'm going to plot them here. So this is your X and this is your y. Uh, they look roughly like this. Now, this isn't linear. I've done that quite deliberately. Um, statistics would be able to fit a model to this curve. It's what we call exponential. So you have an increasing increase, and it goes like that. But there's no reason in the maths to fit a model like this, as opposed to one which puts x on the vertical axis, y on the horizontal axis, and has a relationship like this instead. So as y increases x increases, but the rate at which x increases is slowing down. So this top one here is exponential, this one on the bottom is called logarithmic.
1: How do you know which one's the correct one to use in any specific situation?
0: Well, okay, so whatever your x variable is, whatever's on this horizontal axis, is typically the one that you are – if you're doing experimentally, that'll be the one that you're controlling. Uh, If you're doing it observationally, you have to make the argument. You have to explain which one of these you are going to choose. In a particular plot, you'll know it's exponential if the curve is going up. You'll know it's logarithmic if the curve is kind of petering out like this. Right. To get from one to the other, I've flipped around a diagonal line, right? So if I flip the axes, I get the plot underneath. Because fundamentally, these are the same relationship. It's just a question of whether I am plotting x or y on which axis, right? You get pairs here, x, y, it's the same data point every single time, it's the same data point, but I might be plotting x on the on the horizontal axis and y on the vertical, or vice versa. It's still the same underlying data, and that is what the maths observed. I'm lying a little bit here, because there are some functions which can't be easily uh, reversed that way. So for example, if I have something that looks like this. So I've just drawn a parabola for those who are doing this audio only, this cannot easily be reversed because while for every x value I have a unique y, that's not the same the other way. If I give you a y here, right, along this line, there is two possible x values that that is associated with.
1: Yeah just for those listening a u shape is what the parable is
0: oh yeah yeah so it's it's yeah the 2 to 1 sort of relationship is if you draw a horizontal line across a u it crosses the u at two places the uniqueness of information here only goes one way if you have an x you get a unique y if you have a y you do not get a unique x this doesn't mean that you absolutely have a y-causes-x situation. You could have a y-causes-x relationship where which of the two values that comes out is purely random. So if your y restricts the possible things you observe for x but does not determine which of those you get, that could be something like this. So that's like having a bunch of coins with different numbers on each side. Say so let's say a coin with 0, 1, another coin with 2, 3, And another coin with four, five, and so on. If I pull one of these coins out of a bag randomly, exactly which of these combinations of numbers is not set, right? I've done a random choice, but it has restricted. So if I pull the coin four, five out and then flip the coin, whether I get four or five is not determined, but I won't get one on that coin. So the Y in this sort of imagined picture determines which of the coins you toss, but it doesn't actually tell you which number will show up. Mm -hmm. Relationships where you have this sort of behavior are pretty rare in the data that we're going to talk about, so it doesn't often come up. But to cover my bases, and because I know that statisticians and mathematicians are relentless pedants, I figured I should cover it. The famous adage about how correlation is not causation is very true, as we have seen here. The same applies to co-occurrence. There's a bit of a bias in how humans think, which leads to us seeing two things that happen at the same time and taking that to mean one causes the other, which is what that saying is usually applied for. There's a fantastic website by a a guy named Tyler Vigan, which features a lot of what we call spurious correlations. And here is my favourite. These are two things that vary in time. I have here maths doctorates from the United States universities and uranium stored at US nuclear power plants. The data is from 1996 to 2008. And these two vary quite closely with respect to one another. Of course, what that actually means is that nuclear waste causes mathematicians. <laughs> we can see here, absolutely the case, right? No, no, no questions about that.
1: I mean, you could make an argument for the C factor there—that the same social forces that produces PhDs it also produces <laughs> uh, uranium storage.
0: Yeah, shocking that. So this sort of thing does show up, and the human tendency to see stuff like this, where two things go up and down over time at a similar pattern, means that we can lead to a lot of assumptions about relationships that don't actually exist. The rest of this episode is going to be a handful of case studies of another sort of missing uh, variable. So this was a case where you might be able to argue for the kind of socio-political forces that lead to both. Uh, We're going to see stuff like that. Uh, I'm not so much going to be looking at cases where the explanation given was A, causes B, and instead it's the other way around. I'm going to focus on situations where there is an alternative causal relationship and we have a reasonable understanding of what that might be, but we can't dismiss that coincidences happen, and do happen a lot because reality is stranger than fiction in many respects. Our first is a very old and quite discredited social theory, which is o- often called Homo criminalis. That's
1: my sexuality.
0: Oh, unfortunately this is not the <laughs> B gay do crime statute, alas. <laughs> no, this was cooked up by an Italian dude, Cesare Lombroso, in the 1800s, who proposed that there were some people who were just biologically driven to criminal behaviour because, as the thinking tends to go, they were an inferior subspecies of human. You'd be shocked to know that he was a skull guy, inspired by phrenology, in fact, and that he was also big into social Darwinism. I mean, in in many respects, all of like eugenics is kind of along these lines. They propose an underlying biological mechanism when really, if you just did some fucking material analysis, you'd have a much better handle on that stuff. So he saw things like poverty as additional social factors, but considered physiology to be the primary cause. Extremely cooked guy. He had some, shall we say, interesting ideas about crime and gender as well, like he really hated sex workers, but was so sexist in his consideration of women as inherently inf- inferior to men that he couldn't handle the fact that women are much less likely to commit crimes, particularly violent crimes, which was his focus. Yeah, he, he was really cooked, but he, to his deathbed he was constantly frustrated by the fact that guys just do more crime. I'm sorry. <laughs> Conservatives and bigots have never quite gotten beyond his theory, they just tend to wrap it up another language. So next is a more recent criminological effort, Broken Windows Theory. If you've not encountered this before, it came up in the 80s and 1980s specifically and basically said that unrepaired property damage and other obvious signs of public disorder encouraged people to commit crimes in those spaces because it signals that such things are tolerated and that the area is not surveilled. Broken windows theory was used to justify an expansion of police powers and zero tolerance for policing for things like vandalism in New York City in the 90s thanks to Rudy Giuliani being a huge fan. After the adoption of these policies, New York City did have a fall in the crime rate, but the explanation that this was a result of broken windows theory stuff is contested at best. The policies were introduced at the same time as there was a 40% reduction of unemployment in New York City, and crime rates were falling across the US, even in places which had not implemented those policies by a similar amount too. You've got, I guess... Additional, inflama- uh, inflammation, additional information outside of what is happening within New York City that can give you a different explanation. So within New York, your A, your causal variable, is this broken windows theory stuff. So you implement policies that do things like harshly punish property damage and heavier policing and things like that. Your B is a drop in crime rates. But C which causes the drop in crime rates and may or may not be related to B, the broken window theory stuff, is improved economic conditions, improved living conditions, and you can you can you can see you can observe that at play elsewhere in other areas of the United States. So you have information that indicates this is not the case.
1: Have you ever read the book Freakonomics?
0: It's on the list. I've never gotten around to it.
1: <laughs> uh, that is, they have proposed a different and more eugenicist uh, uh, theory <laughs> that uh, the drop in crime was due to uh, Roe versus Wade passing uh, 18 years before.
0: Um, I could see a less eugenics-based argument for that and more a case of if you do not have people forced to give birth, then it is like the community is less damaged – the community has more resources for the existing people. Certainly there is a eugenics approach to that, which is that poor people clearly produced degenerate children, and thus Roe v Wade's introduction allowed for that to be reduced, which is bullshit, right? But I do think that there is an argument from material conditions, not from eugenics and biology, that reducing unintended pregnancies is beneficial to a community.
1: Yeah, they were kind of like circling around the idea that these were mostly black children. Uh, Ah, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, let's see see (laughs) our episode on eugenics and stuff on that. I have seen another one um, about the uh, banning of leaded petrol. Yes. Yeah, so this is another interesting one, and I think the research is still ongoing for this, and probably will be for a while, uh, is basically that lead po- uh, pollution and lead poisoning was so pervasive during the-, the 20th century, and we know that the some of the effects of lead poisoning include a um, tendency towards disruptive behaviour and a whole bunch of like social issues as a result of lead poisoning, that to remove that source, of potential social problems potentially had quite an impact. I mean, There are still a lot of areas in the US which have pretty rampant lead poisoning. I don't know if Flint, Michigan has had its water fix- system fixed, for example, but also a lot of um, poor housing in urban areas where the landlords are just crap and haven't removed lead paint. So You, you still wind up with a lot of lead poisoning among poor communities, particularly communities of colour, shockingly. Uh, so it's an ongoing problem.
1: Remember when um, Barack Obama pretended to drink uh, Flint water? Flint water. <laughs> mm. Sometimes you just get like memories of like a spectacles <laughs> past, and it's like a Proustian reverie almost. <laughs>
0: There were actually some controlled experiments in implementing those policies in the Netherlands, so they did show some effect. What they did was that they um, took some com- uh, areas where there was like large instances of graffiti and property damage, or whatever, started fixing it consistently, and the crime in those areas did drop. In other areas where this wasn't done, the the crime did not drop. But that's a radically different sort of policing environment and social environment. To the United States. So I don't think that you can say, oh it worked in these things in the the Netherlands so we can necessarily transfer it to the United States because you've got a whole bunch of other stuff like pot is legal in the Netherlands so you don't have people being sent to prison for dealing pot or having pot on them and everything else makes it radically different there. Generally, the criticism of this theory is that it assigns a causal relationship between a symptom of the underlying issue. Properly damaged doesn't get fixed because an area doesn't have the resources or institutions to address it. That is aligned with another symptom, which is higher rates of crime. So in aligning those two kind of symptoms of an underlying problem – material conditions again, baby – then you have a missing variable in play. Second last, and a quick one because I've bitched about a bunch in the past, the infamous marshmallow test. This was a psychology experiment originally published in 1990, which had young kids sit in a room with a marshmallow in front of them. The kids were told that if they waited for the researcher to come back without eating the marshmallow, they would get a second one. If and how long until the kids ate the marshmallow was the observed data, and later achievement... Uh, like in school or economic achievement later on, was kind of the uh, outcome, if you will. The authors claimed that the marshmallow test indicated an ability to anticipate future rewards and to be patient in anticipation of them. Shockingly, when later studies went back and took things like wealth and home situation into account, the effect basically disappeared. It turns out that the ability to wait for food might just be tied to whether or not you trust that more food is showing up. This is one of many psychology studies which desperately needed a bit of sociological help, and another example where material conditions and social structure keep showing up in research about the fundamental tendencies of human behaviour. There's also a bit of a problem when you consider that most of these sorts of studies- not this one, because this was in children, but an awful lot of these studies, particularly in the United States, are basically done on first-year college students and nobody else. (laughs) They are the most researched population in the world. On to our last one. This is less topical now than perhaps ten months ago, but it is a good example outside social science. It's time to talk about Ivermectin. I'm going to be drawing on the work of many other people for this – the references are in the description below. So just in case you've been living in a bomb shelter for the past few years, Ivermectin is an anti-parasite medication used for worms, primarily in livestock but also sometimes in humans. During COVID, there were a whole bunch of people promoting Ivermectin as a COVID treatment specifically, despite it not being an antiviral medication. This blew up due to a hellish mixture of ideology, institutional failings and grifters. It was a whole thing, it probably still is a whole thing. I don't know, I don't hear about it so much anymore. There were actually a bunch of medical trials done with ivermectin in different places across the world, and there were indications of benefits. What they found was that among severely ill COVID patients, ivermectin treatment during the period of being severely ill reduced mortality, sometimes quite substantially, like half the risk of dying, sort of substantially. This was taken by some people to mean that you should be dosing yourself with ivermectin every day to prevent catching COVID at all, (laughs) and that this was more effective than- There's a sociological story here as well as a statistical one. The loss of, I guess, authority by groups like the CDC among the kind of people who started self-medicating by ivermectin is a really, really big issue. I think it's the product of a bunch of things, including the increasingly extremist ideology many of them have. But- I think the destruction of science education in the U.S. has a huge part to play as well. Like Republican-controlled states and cities have spent a generational more undermining school systems, which creates a very real population gap between scientists, broadly defined, and the general population in those places. Which means that. If people don't know scientists, they don't know anybody who has ever done a science degree or does this sort of research or wouldn't know what those people are like, it is much easier to suspect scientific institutions of being hostile to you or like malicious, I guess, overall. That makes it easier to distrust the advice of scientists, particularly when like the other people around you are in a similar boat and like, offer you alternative explanations that align with your ideology.
1: I would also say that there's a component of institutional loss that can oh, be tracked yeah. back to actions of the CDC and organisations Oh yeah, I've got to talk
0: about that in just a second. Yeah, yeah. So there's a class aspect to that lack of science education. The destruction of the public school system in a lot of American states is going to have generational impact, like long-term generational impact in the next few- couple of hundred years. There were also really fucking grotesque failings by the CDC and the US government officials during the early pandemic, which alienated an awful lot of people. I think a lot of people have memory hold this, but in an early 2020, the CDC explicitly said that masks did not work to protect against COVID infection and people shouldn't use them, which is just fucking mind-boggling to me. Now, there is a pedantic sort of point to say, which is that, well... The studies hadn't been done to show that masks actually do work against this specific disease. But we knew it was a SARS virus. We've seen SARS viruses before. Places in Asia that had gone through bird flu and SARS and all these sort of things were immediately masking up because they'd done it before. So there was an element of, I guess, racism in the CDC going, oh, these people don't know what they're doing. To, to say that initially and then to backflip on it later on just destroys your credibility. It's
1: also a political economic problem in that they didn't have the masks early in the, in the pandemic. Yeah. There's no local manufacturing and so they just didn't have enough of them for the general population to use them.
0: Yeah, but if you say early on look, we need to do this, we can ramp up production, all the rest of it, here's how you make your own. Because they're not perfect, but if everybody in a space is wearing homemade cloth masks, it does reduce risk. Absolutely. It's not as good as other ones, but like, you, you can do some stuff, for fuck's sake. I'm still mad, because hundreds of thousands of people died. As a result of this in the US. Not, not, not this specifically necessarily. I mean, I don't think you can make that direct causal link, right? We're talking about causal links here. Yeah. But I think you can make a very strong argument that this stuff contributed to an environment in which more people died than they had to, or would have otherwise rather than had to.
1: With the Southeast Asian example, it's not just um, previous like pandemics that have gone through in the nineties and two thousands. When Chinese officials were asked like how Hong Kong, for example, didn't succumb to COVID, they said masks and lockdowns. Yes. Like you have a working example there. Like
0: Yeah. I got into an argument with a stembro at one point about this actually. I was saying we don't have to have a rigorous controlled study which shows that masks work against COVID specifically, to know what kind of a disease it is, how those kinds of diseases spread, and say that using masks is better than nothing. It's a start. And while we don't know enough, because this was early 2020, so we had very little information and we didn't have a good testing system or anything like that. While we don't know enough, let's take the common sense precautions that we know work in similar situations. And boy, didn't I get into a shit fight about that one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> For how long were you- uh... Washing down your groceries when you brought them back. I I did. I did not did. last on that one very...
0: <laughs> I, I never did. Yeah. I mean, like, we were cooking stuff. Of the diseases that this could have been, COVID was relatively mild. Yeah. Like, this is one of the things that I think gets lost between the um the people who are still... Who would basically driven insane by this, I think is, is how I kind of think about it. I, I don't mean immune-compromised people necessarily who quite rightfully have like a higher level of threat from this, but like people who are who are still like COVID's killing everyone and that sort of thing. I mean it's killing an awful lot of people still, even now at the end of 2022, and that number looks to be ticking up. And like the people who are just like, oh, it's just a flu. Like lost in that division was nuance around the fact that soap and hand washing worked, masks worked. We have these kind of relatively simple first line defenses that we can take. I, I hope that when the next one comes around they learn from this, because it will it will happen. There'll be another one, maybe in a hundred years or so, but you know.
1: Absolutely no chance that's happening, Tess. I know,
0: fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I can dream. E- exactly the same thing happened now as we saw happen in the aftermath of the Spanish flu, which is that that disease kind of um, became one of the strains of influenza that we have now who knows what's going to happen with covid because it doesn't it's not behaving the same way as influenza it's much more severe still um so i guess we'll see 50 100 years from now (laughs) at which point i will be long dead in the climate wars all right that is actually everything i have today thank you for coming on but
1: thank you for having me as ever
0: and i will see you next time
1: i'll see you then